Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Terry Schauer, discovered early on how the real estate industry has attracted many people who are in it for just the money. Coaches, realtors, investors, and others operate as if dollar signs were the main point, or perhaps even the only point. Terry decided to focus on doing it different, and from that, she has lived both an exciting and eclectic life. A single mom and an ex-athlete, Terry holds a PhD that has nothing to do with real estate, and yet she has spent more than half her life managing rental properties. So no matter what else she did, and as you will hear, there is a lot, she was always managing properties as a sideline, and the best part of it all, she loves the business. Investing in real estate and property management is what has allowed her to live an extraordinary life. And for Terry, It's what is so great about being a professional rental housing provider. It offered her exceptional opportunities for leveraging her time and her money. And it's what helped finance her PhD and gave her the time she needed to train as a world-class athlete and competitor. As a business owner and single parent, real estate offered Terry the kind of security and financial stability so many single mothers don't have. And she is grateful for her many experiences in the industry. So with all of that said, let's get this conversation started and hear more about Terry's amazing story. Terry Shower, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me on today's show. 
Thank you for having me on. I'm excited. Yeah, me too, because uh, Terry, uh, and before we get started, because I want to just honor the uh, listeners that don't know who you are, talk to me, and uh, if I ask you the question, who's Terry Shower? what's your answer to that question? Quick elevator pitch, take as much time as you want. <laughs> okay, way to put your guests on the spot without 30 <laughs> seconds of the podcast in the can. Um, okay, so basically, I'm a real estate investor, property manager, and also real estate broker, so real estate professional. And I've been working, basically, I work in Montreal. And so I've been doing this for 20 years. And as time went on, I kind of became a bit preoccupied with how the industry is all about bigger is better. And so a couple of years ago, I kind of reinvented myself as the mindful landlord, which is actually the name of, of a book that I wrote a couple of years ago. And it's kind of how you bring together succeeding in real estate, but at the same time, fitting that into a holistic approach to life. And so I do all the activities that a regular real estate investor or a property manager does. So I manage a certain number of units. Uh, I, I take care of some transactions. I invest for myself. But then in some of the coaching and podcasting that I do, uh, it's really from the perspective of trying to get people to frame their financial activities within the perspective of a full life in whatever way they want to define that. So tell me a little bit about now you're in you're based in Montreal. You've been in Montreal for how long? Well, I was actually, I'm actually a Montreal native. Oh, you are? And I was, yeah, I was away for most of my 20s. I studied um, in Vancouver, in Britain, in Toronto. And then I lived in France, which is actually the first place where I managed properties professionally. And then when I knew I wanted to start my property management business, I came back to Montreal because that's kind of where my strongest network was. And my family's here as well. So so I'm, I, I am a little bit interested. We got a lot of ground to cover what you just said gives me lots of places that I want to enter the conversation. And before we get to what you kind of do today, take me back a little bit, because first and foremost, how did you get interested in investing in real estate? Property management in my world historically is pretty thankless for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is when times are good, they're overpaying you. And when times are bad, you're still, they're still overpaying you and you're not doing your job. So tell me a little bit about where, what was your journey first to real estate investing and then ultimately to property management as well? Yeah. So when I was 21 or 22, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people who end up in real estate do. And little lights started popping off in my head. And I was kind of early on enough in the journey that I hadn't really set out on a course to pursue really getting a job. Um, I was doing a, I did a, a BA in philosophy and then I actually went on to do a PhD in communications. But at that moment, I kind of realized I never want to be an employee. And so I kind of made a commitment to myself, I can say to never get a job. And then the other thing that happened at the same time is I went to study at University of Toronto and I moved into this like crazy student house because there was no space left in residence. And from one day to the next, 19 years old, I'm living with my parents. And then the next day I'm living in this crazy house with no manager. And like the garbage was piling up and it was, you know, nobody was doing the dishes. It was a real mess. And so they voted me house manager within 24 hours of leaving my parents' place, right? So I ended up managing this student house for the two years that I was studying there. And it kind of like was a, a bath of fire, you know, like throw you in, see if you can swim. And I actually discovered that I liked it. 
And I enjoyed living in that kind of a, you know, a community so much that when I went to study after in BC, I rented a big house and decided that I was just going to cookie cutter the model and set it up myself. And then after that, when I moved back to Montreal, uh, I had already figured out kind of how to run student housing. And so I just, uh, you know, knocked on my dad's door and said, dad, I've been doing this for five, six years now. Want to lend me a down payment on a triplex? And that's kind of how things started. Okay. So this is really quite interesting. And part of, you know, my goal always with this particular podcast is to illustrate or to give some examples of how individuals achieve what they achieve. Like, where does it start? Because, you know, many are entrepreneurs and real estate investors that listen to this podcast, many, many business owners. But ultimately, I look and say, where did that come from? You know, you started at 19 years old, you go in there, they make you the house manager, that in itself, and you say yes, and then you take it on. And then you say, I like it. That in itself is a bit of a statement of character. And so nature or nurture. So let's go back just a little bit more. And, you know, as a young lady growing up, were were your parents entrepreneurial? Uh, Where did you get that entrepreneurial spirit from? Like you really came into the world, you know, the working world or the adult world and going into school and doing your thing on your own with that bit of a mindset. Where did where did that come from, do you think? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I do come from a family of entrepreneurs. Mm. Nobody in my family does real estate, but my father uh, owns a company that does um, engineers big washing machines. So stuff that, you know, uh, will wash motors of airplanes and, and pieces of locomotives. And so our con- conversation at dinner growing up was always very business oriented. Like we would shoot back and forth. We would all, we always knew what was going on with my, with my dad's company. If he had tough times, we were involved in it. The discussions with the bank, uh, the good times. And actually my brother went on to start a tech company. So he, I mean, he's, he's a tech entrepreneur now. And so, yeah, I mean, I do come from a bit of an, an entrepreneur family. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you come by it honestly, well, which is always interesting. So do you think, you know, in hindsight or maybe after you've had conversations with your your parents later, do you think that was always their intention was to plant those seeds of being an entrepreneur with you? Or did they just expect you to go get a degree, get a job and, and move on? Was there any of those kind of conversations that you've had? I don't think they expected us to really be entrepreneurs, but I think that that we kind of absorbed it anyway. Like there was always an expectation for us to go and get a degree, but my plan, and it was a plan that was like hatched, like within the family environment was to become a university prof Mm. and growing up, like, because, you know, I used to be really shy and, uh, you know, maybe not, not as, as comfortable with people, not as comfortable in like a salesy environment. The idea was always, well, you know, Terry's not gonna, she's not gonna be in sales. She's not gonna start a company. She's going to be a university prof because in that environment, you don't have to deal with that stuff so much. And then, you know, to my own surprise, that's not what happened. <laughs> okay, so you're you're kind of living in some version of a frat house. You're you're now the manager of that you know that place. You know, you drew the short straw. They, you know, why do you think they that they wanted you to do that? Was it what What do you think it was about you that they said no? Terry can do it. Yeah, so I um I don't know if you're familiar with um the Big Five personality tests in in uh, psychology. Yes, I am. And. If you, you know, I've done various like assessments of those kind of things and I just have that kind of personality. And I think, you know, whatever high industriousness, high conscientiousness, high assertiveness, um, I'm not super agreeable. (laughs) 
even though I seem friendly, but all the things, <laughs> even though you seem friendly, you're a bitch at heart. No kidding. <laughs> um, but all of those qualities that sort of qualify you to create systems and then make sure that people are respecting them. And, you know, if I look back, some of that is, you know, the entrepreneurialism is maybe nurture, but I think the fact of being like a bit of a systems thinker and then having the character to carry that stuff through, if I was, you know, super meek and, and, you know, compassionate and I didn't dare to speak up for myself, I don't think I would end up in this role. And I'm not sure, like some of that you can learn, but I think at 19, it was definitely just that my character was like that. So... Okay, so great. So that gives us a little bit of background and 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 I, you know, character, entrepreneur, real estate investor, you go on to property management. Those are big statements. Like those are cool achievements, and especially to do it at such a young age. And now take me back. We caught up a little bit in my mind, anyways. Take me back to when you decided you were gonna buy this triplex and then approach dad for a down payment. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, that was like a whole episode in itself because, so I, my dad was on board with the idea of buying a building, but um, I don't know if you're, how familiar you are with Montreal, but like there's good parts of Montreal and bad parts of Montreal. And my game plan was to buy a building in basically Hochelaga Maisonneuve, which is like the worst, most cracked out neighborhood at that time in Montreal. And, you know, I was what, 26 at the time. And my, my dad's like, this is a complete disaster. Like, are you prepared to deal with smashed toilets and you shouldn't even be living in there? And what if the building next to you gets blown up? Because like the bikers were kind of active in that neighborhood at the time. And I was like, no, dad, I know what I'm doing. Like, trust me, I can run this as a student house. And it was, you know, a, a real testament to his faith in me that he, you know, lent me the money and co-signed the mortgage because I was, you know, a student at the time. So, <laughs> so, well, tell me more about this property. So you're, you're in the wrong part of town at the time. It seems that way you have decided this is going to be great student housing. You have some insights into student housing that he wouldn't have. I mean, you're dialed in at that age to understanding you had the experience you had. So how are you doing on your plan? So you buy the property. What did you, what was your next steps? Was there renovations involved? What were you having to do? Or did you already in your own mind know that getting students in was going to be fine and you were confident in that, obviously? Tell us a little bit about how to actually unfold it. Yeah. So it wasn't, I mean, I knew that that was kind of my longer term game plan with the building, but when I purchased it, there were like kind of the sort of tenants you would expect in that neighborhood at the time. And the rents were actually at market value for the neighborhood at the time. And then what happened, I think it was like maybe a month or two into me owning the building, my tenants left and it was a triplex. I was living in one unit and then the other two units vacated themselves. And like, I was not making the big bucks. I was a, you know, a PhD student at the time. So I had like a bit of a government stipend coming in, but it was like not enough to cover the mortgage. And then I kind of started panicking and I was like, okay, I, you know, I don't have the money saved up to make these mortgage payments. What am I going to do? And so it's then that I kind of like stepped back and said, okay, maybe I don't know how to find tenants. And I'm concerned that in this area, the kind of tenants I find will not be great, but I know how to rent student rooms. So let me go to value village. And I went to value village and, you know, bought all of this like messed up old furniture. I had a little Honda civic with no hatchback at the time. I was moving mattresses like on the roof of my Honda civic. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I furnished, you know, those, those rooms on a, on a shoestring budget. And then I rented the apartments by the room. So instead of trying to find one tenant who's going to take over the whole place. They were three bedroom places. I rented three bedrooms 
And it just so happened that by doing that, um, I was able to increase the rent by 50% above market value. And then that proved to be such a, a good business model that one building, two buildings, three buildings. And then I thought, okay, this is such a great business model. Now I need to cookie cutter it and sell it to other people who want to make their buildings profitable in that neighborhood. Because all the other landlords around there had the same problem, which is that the quality of tenants was not great. The rents were low. And so, you know, then I started pitching my model to other landlords in the area. So let's go back a little bit. I want to hear about, more about that. Now, just to go back to tenacity and character. So you're upside down, you lose some tenants, you don't know how you're going to cover mortgage. Uh, was your first reaction, I can't tell that? Or was your first reaction, I should tell that? Where did no, you go? No, 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 we're not telling dad. No, <laughs> we're no, not no, telling dad. <laughs> See, this goes back to that character assessment, right? <laughs> okay, I'm not telling dad. I'll figure this shit out myself. So no, no, that, no. That's great. <laughs> that's awesome. No, and especially after he, you know, he so specifically told me, Terry, you're crazy about the area. Like, what are you going to do if your tenants leave? This is going to be a complete disaster. I was like, there, no, there's no chance I'm asking for help. Like I had, I had sleepless nights at that time. I, I remember lying in my bed and, you know, I wasn't worried about finishing my PhD. I was worried about like, how am I going to make my mortgage payments? <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. So now tell me a little bit about, uh, you, you saw that this model's kind of cool. You've got some students, you're getting above average rents by doing that. You see opportunities with other buildings. So tell me how you move forward with that. You took it on, you started approaching some landlords. How did that work for you? Yeah, well, there was actually, like if I, if I tell the story chronologically properly, so there was kind of a hiatus period. So after I, I bought, I think it was the first two buildings, um, I then, I used to actually, I used to kickbox and I got an opportunity to kickbox semi-professionally in France nothing to do with anything. <laughs> um, but I got, so I got on a plane, <laughs> um, and I left for three years basically to pursue that dream. And during that time, I knew that when I came back to Montreal, I was going to want to start a real estate practice. And so as my day job, I got a job in a property management company in Marseille where I was, uh, living at the time. And so I spent three years doing that. And basically I was trying to like learn how their systems work so that I could just clone them when I went back home after. So you uh, you skipped over that before you moved to Marseille to kickbox. What a great story, by the way. I love this. So yeah, my, you... <laughs> my life is a bit all over the place, I know. <laughs> That's so awesome. So um, before you moved back or you, you bought a second building, uh, tell me a little bit about that, just so I understand kind of the scope of what you had going on at the time. Because at one point you're losing sleep because you might not make a mortgage payment. You get some students in. Now, was that what you do by a, a building next door or what was the next move for you in that regard? Yeah, well, it actually like really unfolded like in a year and a half. It went super fast. So as I realized that I had this, you know, great model to make money with the building, it, I went from not being able to make mortgage payments to actually having increased the value of the property. And it also happened that like properties in that area were appreciating. So I found that within a year and a half, I had made the additional like equity capital in the property to be able to refinance and buy a second building. So that's what happened. And it was basically like literally five minutes away. And my goal was to kind of like have a sort of a student community like that lived in the same area so that we could, you know, organize events and have parties and like do different things that like become cooler, the more people are involved. So, yeah. So you go away and you're, uh, in Marseille, what, uh, who was looking after your buildings while you were gone? Did you have a property manager? Did you have a friend? Yeah. How did that get handled? 
Yeah, no, I had a, a, I hired somebody who did property management and actually it's funny because that person then after when I came back, ended up mentoring me into, you know, brokering and like kind of doing everything on a more professional level, but they, yeah, I hired a manager. So what was it, you know, you, 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 you seem pretty clear that you wanted to be a property manager and, and what, what about it appealed to you? Like, I'm just trying to give some insights into that particular I've never talked to anybody that had a, a vision that one day they'd be a property manager. It's usually accidental landlords, accidental property managers, guys who build a portfolio and they go, I may as well manage my own portfolio. Uh, it makes more sense. But I haven't had, I, I've never spoke with anybody. And I've talked to a lot of property managers that said, you know, I want to be a property manager when I grow up one day, you know, it's like that. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I don't know that I have like a really, you know, clean answer about this. I mm -hmm. think it's just the aspect of real estate work. If I can say that I excelled at and that I like, I like it, mm -hmm. you know, if I have a choice, like I have my broker's license and if I compare my activities as a broker, which are, uh, how can I say, stroking my clients, you know, in the direction of the fur, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, picking up the phone after hours, um, you know, having to do things under a lot of time pressure, you know, I, I have the confidence today to do that job, but it's not something that I enjoy. Whereas I really enjoy, you know, if I see a building, I can have a vision for it. I will say, okay, look, this is how I can optimize the building. Uh, it turns out that I also have an eye for like up and coming neighborhoods. And so like my investments and the money that I made was never in like the best parts of town is always in like kind of the up and coming areas. And then I would like with, my business model evolved over time, but it became kind of um, marketing the units to like a, a kind of a different sort of population. And in Montreal, it often ends up being, you know, um, recently arrived immigrants and that that then allows you to change the quality of the building, optimize the rents. And, you know, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't have a better answer than that. Other than that, really, I, I just, I like it, you know? That's great. <laughs> Yeah, it's just I'm just curious about it because you see these things happen, and and because property managers kind of it's just an interesting part to play in the world of real estate investing, and you don't it's not common to run across somebody who says I love being property manager. Now that's not to say that nobody does. It's just that it's not you're like really fired up about it, and I love it that you're really lit up about it. I think it's so great. Now you're in Montreal. Are you uh, are you primarily looking at now? Do you do single family? Two parts to the question. Uh, you yourself, are you investing still in single family or are you doing multi? What's your kind of model personally? Yeah. So, I mean, in Montreal, single family really isn't a thing for investing. Um, it, just as a data point, Montreal is the densest city in North America uh, in terms of population, like everybody being stacked together, which interestingly is why we've had such a hard time of COVID uh, just because every it's like a European city. It's It's very dense. And so we don't have, there's not a lot of single family homes and the single family homes that there are, are usually covered, coveted by people who actually own them to live in them. Mm -hmm. And so kind of just by definition, it ends up that people who invest here, I've met virtually nobody who invests in single family homes. And also with our tenancy laws in Quebec, which tend to be like super pro tenant, the level of like damage and like lack of care, let's say that you would get in a single family home would just be so damaging to the property. Like we can't take damage deposits. The, it's called the Régie du Logement. Like the tenancy board here is uh, very tenant friendly. And so whatever naughty things the tenants get up to, they usually end up not having to pay for them. And so it just ends up making more sense to own rental units that are like really destined to be rental units, as opposed to like something that can sort of be both 
both things. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because within the rain community, you know, we are often asked because we have members from Montreal uh, and in Quebec overall, but you know, Montreal being the primary focus, we don't spend a lot of time uh, looking at even the economics of Quebec because it is, it's like this different animal when it comes to real estate investing and tenant laws. And to your point is like, how do you guide investors given what's going on? So we've always, it's not that we avoid it. It's just that where do you even enter the conversation? Now, in your case, however, uh, you've you've not only an investor, you're doing property management, and now I understand that you're also doing some coaching, supporting people. Are they in fact investing in uh, Quebec and Montreal specific, or what's what does that world look like for you, Terry? Yeah, so I mean, my uh, Quebec really is its own animal, mm-hmm. and you know, I have I obviously like I worked in France. I also uh, worked in in Toronto and like briefly interacted in Vancouver when I was there. So I kind of have you know a visibility of of some different markets and Quebec is its own is its own world the one thing is is french because if you're not proficient in french or you don't at the very minimum have a property manager or professionals around you who are proficient proficient in french that's going to be a struggle then there are the fact that like legally it's really a bit of a different environment and it's not just you know for having worked in france like it's not just that the contracts are different it's that the framework with which things are set up is they're really thinking to the benefit of the tenants. And so you kind of have to like turn your thinking around and say like, really, we're not trying to make people responsible for their actions, you know, and like, whatever, this is a bigger conversation. But like, if I had a critique of, you know, what's wrong with the Quebec system is I feel like they really take personal responsibility out of a lot of aspects of life, which again, if you look at the COVID situation, you can sort of like extrapolate that out it's a bigger conversation but it's really just the way that the industry is set up here it's a, it's kind of a a different animal and so the people that i work with tend to be mostly local investors and then once in a while people from outside quebec who are looking how they can get a foothold in here because there are interesting investment opportunities but you then have to correct for the fact that there's this ecosystem that maybe people are not used to so can you give me, Terry, can you give our listeners a, just an example? Are you, I mean, you're familiar with, uh, somewhat familiar, or maybe you're really familiar with what, let's say, Ontario landlord-tenant laws are and, and regulations. Can you give me an example of where there would be, because many would argue that that's the case in Ontario, that they're very tenant-friendly as opposed to really supporting the rental housing provider in that regard. Are you able to give us an example of of what is different in Ontario, for example, versus Montreal or vice versa? Mm -hmm. Well, I will give you like the the most glaring example. You can tell me if you want more examples after that, but the damage deposit is the most glaring example. Mm -hmm. Here in Quebec, you're not allowed to take a damage deposit. So what does that mean? It means that the tenants, when they move out, don't clean up. It means that they're completely not responsible for leaving any detritus there. It means that they don't do upkeep of the unit, knowing that there's going to be a walkthrough at the end that's going to cost them money. And just that one little thing colors the entire relationship because the level of taking responsibility for how you use a unit is completely, the onus is completely on the landlord. Now then, having said that, let's talk a little bit about, I just want to cut, hit a couple of points. What about then in the world of eviction? You know, if you, you know, if you're getting constant noise complaints or they are damaging the property, what's the, what's the rules and regs when it comes to eviction and what you can do there? Mm-hmm. Or so perhaps I, not paying rent, for example, you know? Yeah. Okay. So this is what I, I always tell my clients. So there's basically rent non-payment 
and then there's everything else. Mm. So the rental board here is actually quite good with non-payments. And uh, it's like usually a three-week delay to get a court date. And then the process happens pretty quickly to evict someone if they're not paying. And there's no you know, people, there's some rumors about people not being evicted in winter or whatever else, but like, no, the, you know, the rental board COVID aside, because it was closed for about six months, but like on normal times, non-payment is pretty much your best scenario if you're a a landlord here. But now everything else, noise complaints, damages, dogs, smoking, like any other problem, you name it, you're looking at like a two to three year wait until you even get a hearing. Wow. And then if you get a hearing, like it's not going to be an eviction, like basically it's going to be a slap on the wrist to the tenant and good luck. Now, that's 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 interesting. Now, in the screening process. So, you know, are you also limited into in terms of what you can do through your screening process? Like, how do you find great tenants and uh, avoid those that are kind of got a history of not paying or maybe their credit's bad or whatever the scenario is? How? How well can you screen tenants? Are they protected in that regard as well? No, I mean, the screening process, I think, is pretty similar to what I've seen elsewhere. Like I said, you know, my my job, actually, when I was in France, I was a rental agent. So I would build the the applications for tenants there. Um, And so like that, I'm quite familiar with. So our tenant application looks quite similar to a tenant application anywhere else. Mm -hmm. The only issue that I ran into once, which I think probably it's it's probably like federal laws. I'm not sure if it's, it's Quebec, but like, for example, when you refuse someone, there are very specific reasons for which you can refuse them. And so, for example, you can refuse someone for bad credit. You cannot refuse them, for example, for the type of revenue they have. And why is this important? Because let's say someone's on government assistance. You cannot seize government assistance money. And so that means that even if I have two revenues that are similar, someone who's receiving unemployment insurance or some kind of government money, if that money is going into a bank account, I can't touch the bank account. Whereas if it's employment revenue, you can seize the employment revenue. And I made the mistake one time of explaining this distinction to someone who applied uh, for an apartment with us. And I ended up with a, a case of discrimination before the Human Rights Commission. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's federal or provincial, but... <laughs> Just curious, how did you fare? Uh, well, it, it was actually amazing. Like it ended up costing me a hundred bucks. Like it ended up being mediation because like I knew I knew I was right, but to fight it would have just cost me so much money and so much trouble that like I offered her a hundred bucks and that was the end of it in court. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> That's cool. So then because I want to just I, I'm actually very curious in because we often get questions about Quebec and why and why not and all the rest of it. But when you look at, you know, you said earlier that single families not a big thing or a thing at all in uh, particularly in Montreal, what kind of buildings are working? Are you finding, you know, you talked earlier about a triplex, you know, not really multifamily, but multi-unit. So are you playing in a space called multi-unit triplex or, or greater, or what, what really is the kind of the market for investors uh, in Montreal, for example? So, I mean, I think uh, in terms of the types of buildings that we have here, the constructions in the city, there are a lot of duplex, triplex, some less fourplex and fiveplex. And the usual pattern that people follow is that they'll start out with one or two properties like that. And then at some point they get tapped out of 
um, revenues, like get tapped out of, of debt ratios, and then they get into the six doors and more because that's financed as multifamily. Sure. Yeah. So me at, at this point, I'm not investing in, in um, anything that's outside of that market. I'm in the six doors and over uh, now, just because with the debt ratios, like once you earn a certain, earn a certain amount of properties, even if you're you know, earning 500K, it's not going to, you're, you're going to run out of, of, of revenue to tap for that. So when you look at um, your journey as a real estate investor, and I'm understanding that your focus is really Quebec, when you look at your journey as a real estate investor, property manager, what do you see in the future for what's going on in Quebec? And what are you seeing that's changed in the property management world? Because to your point, when we look right across Canada, short of maybe Alberta, we really see that landlord-tenant relationship uh, shifting and changing and regulations being put in and protect, you know, lots of protection of the tenant. And I won't even go off, you know, we can we can debate those issues a lot, but let's, what have you noticed and in, in seen what's going on in Quebec? Well, I mean, if we're looking just at, like, let's say, landlord-tenant relationships, I feel like our laws here were already so pro-tenant that as far as I'm aware, there's not very many new laws that are being implemented. Like that's just pretty much kind of continuing how it was. What's changing is maybe the practice of that. And so one of the things that's happened in the last five years is the real estate market in Montreal has just taken off like crazy. And so what's happened is that like you get all these like optimizers who basically want to come in, buy a building, evict all the tenants who are paying low amounts of rent and uh, rent it for more money. And it's like, you know, the rents here have doubled and because everything is rent control, like you can have two identical units in the same building, one renting for 600 bucks and the other one renting for 1200, just because of rent control. And because this process has been going on, like basically a lot of tenant organizations have started to become involved in helping the tenants. And so it's not that the laws have changed, it's that the resources and the public discourse, like in media, for example, there's a, a lot of talk about how landlords are, it's called a renovictions, renovictions, about how all of Montreal is basically being turned into, you know, a gentrified area because the rents are in a in a free up upward trajectory. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, that's a, a you know a, a change specifically to Montreal. I would say there's still a real delimitation here between the island of Montreal and surrounding areas and the rest of Quebec, mm. and the more rural areas. Like it's actually crazy. Like in Montreal right now, buildings are selling for twenty times multiples, and if you go out to like Trois Rivières, which is maybe an hour and a half outside of Montreal, it's ten. Wow. Yeah. So it's 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 really it's huge, and it's because. Nobody, like the professional class of investors, they live in Montreal or out of province, and they're only comfortable working in Montreal. And so if you, once you leave the island, you're kind of in this thing where there's not really property managers, there aren't the same structures, there's not the same like level of professionalism. And so people are just afraid to go there. Tell me a little bit about, you know, I want to just touch base uh, uh, with what's going on. You, you know, you, you mentioned it being high density and, and what that did with, you know, what COVID and what that, how COVID impacted it. What was the impact on COVID over this past year plus of what was going on in Montreal? Now, from a real estate point of view, Montreal's done quite well. There's been some pretty significant increases in terms of property values, but how was it on your side from a managing tenants and and what they did in that case? How was that for Montreal? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think we also need to just be a little bit fine-grained about what's really going on because I think the low-interest environment and the people who have been 
affected by the pandemic. Like, you know, I was reading an article by CIBC not long ago that the, I think it's the top whatever 20% of earners have actually seen their income go up. Whereas the bottom 20% of earners have like are suffering from like crazy unemployment. And so, you know, on the one hand, I think like people who have money and who invest are not suffering right now. Mm -hmm. There's a certain class of tenants who are suffering. There's a certain class of tenants who are not even here because in terms of like foreign students and and immigrants, like we're looking at a 6% vacancy rate in Montreal right now. Right is very high. Yeah. That hasn't started affecting property values so much, which is interesting. And you know, I really I could really go on about COVID because I have to say I'm I'm like very frustrated and in disagreement with the way our government in Quebec is handling things, but I think the postmortem on this in a year once you start adding up the mental health issues, the addiction issues, the bankruptcy rate of restaurants, gyms, uh, people who are involved in those industries. Like right now, the government might be supporting some of them. But like once that support drops out and they open up, like there's going to be a lot of extinction. This is a mass extinction event over here with the like the length and the, the intensity of the shutdowns. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I'm totally on the same page as you. I think that, you know, we lack leadership in government and we can talk government all day long. I don't know, by the way, you know, I don't I don't necessarily believe that any provincial, even our federal government. I don't think the conservatives or NDP would have done better than uh, Trudeau. I'm not a Trudeau fan, but, you know, and there'd be lots of argument about that, but I don't think there's leadership anywhere in this. And, you know, somebody always comes back to me with the question, well, geez, Patrick, what would you do differently? And well, that, of course, then is a whole different conversation that we get. But I I think most, and I shouldn't say that, many would agree that the leadership and how this whole thing has been handled has been a little suspect. And, uh, you know, a, a really great quote, uh, that I got was, you know, somebody asked, I think it was uh, Rickards, Jim Rickards, you know, how did we get here? And the quote he said was, arrogant scientists and naive politicians. And it was really a case, he said, science is never definitive. And he says, if you talk to a real scientist, they don't have all the answers and they actually tell you they don't have all the answers. Yet many of our medical and scientists are being definitive in what they're telling the government to do. The government doesn't want to take responsibility for it. So they say, well, I'm just doing what I'm told. And then all of a sudden we've got a healthcare service and scientists running a country. So to your point, the fallout from that is pretty deep. And, you know, we all have heard about the mental health issues and the suicides and the family violence and the child, uh, you know, violence, all the things that are happening right now. So what's the follow? So we can debate that for a long time. And um, so I, I do, I, you're singing to the choir in that conversation because I think, you know, hindsight's 2020, we'll know a lot more in the coming months as to what's going on. It's interesting to your point is that, you know, the, you've got a high vacancy rate and, and why do you think that is? Like, is it because of the students? Is it because of the lack of immigration? Uh, is that really where the gap is in uh, Montreal or in Quebec overall? Well, it's it's three things. It's the students. We have it, like a lot of European, a lot of French students coming in. We also have a lot of North Africans. Like the immigration in Quebec is basically francophone immigration. And France has been a bit of a disaster. The transatlantic flights are stopped. I don't know exactly what the visa situation is, but basically all the French and and North Africans, Algerians, Moroccans, like all those people who were coming in, they're not coming in. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing with campuses going online. You also have a lot of people who are doing their semesters from their home country. 
like a lot of McGill students, let's say, are now like following their classes online from wherever they live and their parents are saving on paying them an apartment in Montreal. So I think that's one thing. The other aspect is, is really that sort of bottom 20% of the population who now can't pay their bills anymore. And so, you know, I've seen that more because I have more lower end units and I've seen a lot of people either like move back with mom and dad, or I've had like a higher amount of defaults. It's not crazy, but maybe let's say 10, 15% of those units have turned over uh, during the year, like, because our, our moving day is in July. So I had vacancies in, you know, December and January that we don't usually have. So. So I'm curious, you know, uh, my wife, Stephanie, and I, we love Montreal. She's got partners in Montreal in a, in a business. Uh, she, she is a mental performance coach for high-end athletes. So we get to Montreal quite often. So here's the, the question I have for you is, I think we were back there. I've lost track. I want to say it was back in May 2020. So sometime after the pandemic and, you know, all the shutdowns and all the things that were happening. And I mean, it was really like most cities downtown was really quiet. I, we stayed at a hotel, a kind of a boutique hotel. I think we're the only, I think we were the only, uh, uh, I think we're the only uh, uh, visitors they had. And uh, so what's, what's happening in downtown Montreal today, you know, in, in Vancouver, Toronto, uh, easy to point out Calgary, same thing is that, we saw people moving out of the downtown core, uh, selling and, and literally moving out of the downtown core and then getting out into the suburbs, into larger single family type properties. What, what's happening in Montreal and surrounding area there? Well, I think if it's, it's more when you look at who lives in those high rises, because I think like we have, you know, let's say Griffintown is the area here that's been really built up with a lot of uh, condo high condo buildings. And that was really a lot of people who were working in offices downtown. It's a lot of foreign students and it's a lot of recent immigrants. And what I would say is that I don't know that those people have relocated. I think they've just actually left like left Canada or else, you know, like some of the young professionals who are here, let's say working in like, you know, some of the software places um, downtown, like they don't need to live in those towers anymore. Now, I think a lot of them have probably just decided to stay there, but the vacancy rates in like the downtown core are definitely up. And uh, especially like also when you look at, and we're talking a lot about residential, but like if you look at commercial, like it's starting to be very evident now, like you drive around the city and like, I wouldn't have a percentage, but like, I feel like it's one in five storefronts now, like has paper in the windows because they're just not going to make it. I'm seeing that, you know, I, I get to Alberta. I mean, I'm in Vancouver, we get to Toronto occasionally, but so we're seeing that. I mean, it doesn't matter who you talk to, we're seeing that across. So we, that goes back to a little bit of a about the fallout, the economic impact of this. So that's for another show. This show is really about Terry. So I, I'm finding myself okay. going, I'm really interested and curious. I love Montreal and uh, we have good friends there and and uh, I love going there. So, But I have not really caught up. Even my friends, they're not in that space. So they're, they're you know, they just live in Montreal and they're great friends, but they're not in the real estate world. So it's really the first conversation I'm going, Terry, oh gosh, we got somebody behind the curtain that we can actually talk about real estate and what's going on in, in uh, Quebec and, you know, primarily Montreal. So it's, it is really easy for me to go down that path. But I want to know more about you. So I digress a little bit. And, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to go talk a little bit more about you. And I want to know, where the hell did kickboxing come in? Like, this is like, it's kind of way back into this is this story that we started on. How do, uh, how do you, Terry, um, get into the world of kickboxing at a competitive level, no less? I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like you're 
kickboxing at a local gym, although I'm sure you did that, but you actually traveled to compete. Is that what I understood? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more. Um, well, I mean, I guess like I've always kind of been into sports. Like I played uh, ice hockey. I went to McGill. I played ice hockey at McGill. I transferred to UFT. I played on the UFT ice hockey team. And like for women, that's kind of the level just below the Olympic team. So it's, it's already really competitive. And I think I realized playing at that level that like team sports were kind of not my thing. And in my mind, I'd always thought I was going to do martial arts. And so when I was 22, I kind of like transferred out of the team sports environment and started, I was actually karate, but the part that I enjoyed was really the, you know, the, the sparring. And so then one thing kind of led to another and I just, I just got fascinated, you know, and like, this is maybe, this is where the whole mindful landlord comes in because obviously like there's one part of my life that's very business oriented and building a business and learning the skills that have to do with, with real estate. But like my real passion and the thing that drove me to evolve was my sport and, you know, coming out of, let's say my shell as a shy person and like doing what I had to do to network my way into the good gyms, getting good coaching, having opportunities that I needed to have in my sport. It was really that, that forced me to examine my mindset and basically like build the way my mind functions kind of from the ground up so that I could succeed in the sport. And then obviously once you go through that work in one aspect of your life, it just floods out everywhere else. But I would say that like really, you know, the, the, the holistic kind of uh, success oriented, but also whole individual mindset, it comes from, from martial arts, not so much from real estate. But this goes back to what you, you know, we joked about earlier is that you, you know, you show up as a really nice person, but you know, probably you're not all that nice. And so I, and I, and I know that's not true, but obviously you got some kick-ass attitude around you. And and so it's always interesting to see in the world of personal professional development in being an entrepreneur, being a real estate investor, you know, really uh, you're a, and you're a coach as well. So uh, it's always interesting to say, well, what is it about Terry that had her have the success that she's had? Now, I know we all go through what we go through in business and we have our trips and falls and our setbacks and all the things that happen, but it's also our ability to pick ourselves up. So, you know, when you look at even your training in the world of martial arts, do you see where that had an impact on you today, for example, and how it really molded you in terms of your attitude? Or once again, is it a nature or a nurture conversation? Or was that just really who you were? And that became an outlet for you? Do you have any thoughts around that, Terry? Mm-hmm. Well, so look, I mean, I think there's two answers to that. So like, the first thing is, I'm just competitive by nature. And I think that like, I'm competitive, and I'm like a very embodied individual. I'm not somebody who can be in my mind all day, I have to be moving. And so I think those two things are kind of Uh, nature. But then, you know, I talk about rich dad, poor dad in terms of like a real estate journey. But when I was 25 or 26, I read um, Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. Mm -hmm. And the reason why those books or that train of thought came into my life is because I was actually suffering from like debilitating panic attacks. And I was having like my own mental health issues. And my, I found that my mindset was actually a real barrier to my success because I had like a lot of black and white thinking. So for example, I would think that if I don't try something, if I try something and I'm immediately not good at it, it means that I'm never going to be good at it. 
for example, mm-hmm. or there's all kinds of other, or like victim thinking, like, let's say in, in how you frame things, you can make everything your responsibility, or you can say that it's the world that dealt you a certain set of cards. And so you're a victim of those cards. And so basically through, uh, I mean, Dan Millman was my access point, but then I kind of like gravitated out into that literature. And there's like a bunch of other uh, books kind of in that, in that field. And then I really made it my mission to optimize my mental habits for success. And I was doing that like specifically to succeed at kickboxing. But like, you know, if you go back to like when I was 24, 25, like I was, I was a bit of a mess, (laughs) you know, like, like it was certainly not nature that, um, you know, uh, made me the six into the successful person that I've become. Like that was definitely premeditated examining, like what is, what is the way to mentally, condition yourself to be successful, but then how to also feel fulfilled with it, because those are two different things. You know, you, uh, you've mentioned two books that, you know, interesting is that Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I think when I talk to guests on the show now, four plus years later, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is without a doubt one of the most uh, read books. I, I think there's very few of my guests that have ever been on, even if they're not real estate investors, didn't at some point read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and, uh, you know, move on from there. So that's an interesting one. Dan Millman, uh, way of, was it Way of the Peaceful way Warrior? Way of the Peaceful yeah. Warrior. Yeah, he has a bunch of other books. Yeah, he's but got that was a, a number of them. But it's interesting as, as a coach, because I you, both my wife and I have been coaches for a number of years, is when we're taking on a new client, it's one of the books, the first books we have them read. And it's actually not as a lesson book, it's to see where they are in their journey and to have an understanding. It's a, it's a bit of a filter to understand where they are. So it's a great, great book. I encourage anybody, if you can find it still, uh, I don't know that they, they're still making or publishing hard copies, but it is a great point of entry and it was a wonderful book. Uh, and, I, and it was very, very, it's been impactful on many people. It was very impactful on me. I know it was a, a great start to a different journey, a different path. So it was great. What do you do as a uh, as a coach? Tell me a little bit about your own coaching. Are you coaching in the personal and professional development space as a real estate investor? Because you're doing some of that work in behind the scenes, I understand, Terry. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the answer is my like I have two completely different coaching avenues. Like one of them is in real estate, where basically usually people come to me when they have become interested in investing, but they haven't made any moves yet, and often they're dealing with you know some fear that they need to overcome or else some lack of knowledge where like, you know, in the beginning I will kind of see where they're at and then we can look at, are they missing knowledge? Is there like a mindset issue? So one is like kind of real estate coaching. And then, um, pre COVID, I actually run a women's program in my, I now do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so I run a women's program in uh, the gym where I coach. And so I, I coach women, really it's a competition team. So like I coach you know, a bunch of female athletes, but really the ones who kind of want to push themselves a bit further. Um, so that allows me to like, you know, kind of coach in two different uh, avenues. So tell me a little bit, uh, Terry, I want to go back to a comment you made and, and kind of my interview style, I have a tendency to jump around and go back. So, but I wanted, you know, you mentioned that at a time you were having panic attacks and can you describe what that may look like? Is it, you know, what is the difference between, let's say a panic attack or an anxiety attack? Are they the same thing, different verbiage? Can you give me a little bit of insights in that? Because I really do wanna know, and I'm and I'm serious about it, is what was that like? And then how did you overcome it? Were you uh, brave and asked for help kind of thing? But let's just talk about what is a panic attack and in, in your definition and your experience and how did you get past it? 
So there's kind of like two uh, different kinds of anxiety, let's say. And one is what's called like more like generalized anxiety, which means that like you'll just sort of have like repetitive thoughts and worry about things and maybe, you know, question yourself a lot. Like it's like kind of a, a noise volume in the back of your head all the time. And a panic attack is like kind of a spike in that. And so different people, it manifests in different ways. Some people feel short of breath and they can feel like they're having a heart attack. Um, what happened to me is I just had what's called derealization, which is like, you kind of see yourself like from outside of yourself somehow, like it's, and, and then your contact with reality is not as what it should be. Like basically your body is doing things, but your mind is kind of somewhere else. And it's, it's actually terrifying like it's the most terrifying experiences i've ever had is that it is that it terry just is you know part of this is really interesting is because you know mental health has become a big issue over covid and and of course just the timing of what's going on in the in the mental health world that's why i'm digging into this a little bit when you talk about that disconnect is that kind of the idea that you may drive somewhere and then realize that you have no recall of the actual trip (laughs) that you were lost in space that way would that be a description of it or how would you describe that i mean we can all do that but how do you describe the connection the disconnect it's no it's it's an acute moment of terror like i i don't know it's like like if a phobia is another example like let's say you know i've seen people jump out of moving cars because they saw a spider okay got it and it's wow. like that level of terror, except that it's not really related to anything. Mm-hmm. Like it's as if your mind just starts kind of spinning and then like it's your fight or flight response that gets out of control. And then it's like kind of a feedback loop that the, you're like, oh God, it's happening again. Oh, am I going to die? And then you kind of, it's like usually associated with the thoughts of I'm going to die. I'm going to humiliate myself. I'm going to commit suicide. Like there's usually some kind of thing running in the background. And because it's, it's so terrifying, you actually kind of don't know what's going on and you slowly lose the ability to calm yourself down. And Wow. I mean, so fascinating. But, you know, here you are. I mean, you're solid. You've you've got all the tenacity. You're successful. You've done all the things you've done. Yet you went through that, which to me is just a description. And I just recently found out a good acquaintance committed suicide that we had no idea. It was was shocking because I'd just been speaking with him and all sorts of things. And you don't realize, and and I mean, this is a, a very astute individual, very accomplished in business, very accomplished in his career. And I was just like, what the hell? And you don't realize uh, the impact of mental health. And so that's why I've, I've, I'm interested in this conversation sincerely, because it's like, here's Terry, shower, she's got her shit together, she's done all these things, but you went through that period of time. And I know that these people need to hear this. So did you, I'm I'm curious, did you ask for help? Did you recognize it yourself? How did you deal with it so that you kind of got through it? Well, like, look, if you are having panic attacks, like there's no way you can not know it. (laughs) Well, that's, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think that the common thing is that people like usually end up in emergency rooms because they think they're having a heart attack or or they will end up in like, you know, some some, uh, uh, outpatient mental health thing because they're so freaked out. And so like, basically it's actually kind of a, not, not a great story, but like at the time I went to, you know, talk to a physician and the first thing they did, like I had seen the guy for five minutes, he wrote me a prescription for like antidepressants. And I looked at the piece of paper and was like, what is this? Like, uh, no, I'm not doing this, you know? And that was when I really like decided that I was going to take the steps to try and understand what was going on. And turns out anxiety is actually 
the easiest mental health problem to fix. And if you understand, like with, it's it's actually called cognitive behavioral therapy. Like if you are able to understand, like, what are the triggers for your anxiety? What are ways of diffusing it? How are your mental patterns maybe amplifying the anxiety as opposed to pulling it down? Like you can actually have a very good success rate with getting that under control. And like, that's exactly what happened. You know, like I, I I mentioned Dan Millman, but I basically like read, uh, it's actually this great book called the anxiety panic and phobias. And that basically that book, like I cured myself within three months, you know, just, just by like reading that book and implementing like everything that they suggested. And like, you have a, a very good, it's not like, like anxiety is not maybe like depression or schizophrenia or something, which is like maybe more tenacious in, in you anxiety. You can actually fix if you deal with it. So you recognize that breakdown now, just to, out of curiosity, when you went to the doctor, were you going to the doctor specifically for that? Or was that something that he picked up on? No, I, I couldn't function. Like yeah. I couldn't function. I was, I was so afraid. I was having like three, four panic attacks a day. I couldn't leave the house. Okay, got Like it. I couldn't take the Metro by myself. Like it was a disaster. Yeah. yeah and it, and it, it, once again, I go back to just how surprising that is not having an under personally, not having an understanding of mental health issues and, and sometimes being, you know, with no relatedness to it, because as I say, it's one thing you can be pissed off, you can be depressed, you can go through certain things, but as you, you know, you, we can have a handle on it and get through it. But once again, you get to somebody who's seems really clear, but have these issues going on. And I'm, I'm just fascinated by how that works. And I think people don't understand. So when we're talking about, you know, when we're shining a light on depression and what other people might be going through, we really, really don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, so it's just an interesting conversation I find yeah. and, and a really good awareness for anybody to have. And I certainly got a, a you know, another, I don't want to call it a wake up call, but it was just like, wow, we really don't know what's happening with people these days. And uh, when that, like I say, good acquaintance uh, committed suicide, very sad situation. So, Okay, so let's go back a little bit. Now, you're, I go to all your own kind of personal professional development and what you've done in sport, how that impacted your business. Tell me a little bit about what your future holds, Terry, given what you do. What do you see in the future for yourself? What are your goals? Are you a goal setter? Like, because it sounds like you're pretty, like, I want this. I'm going to be a property manager. I'm going to be a real estate investor. Uh, did that come from setting goals or how are you in that space? No, I'm super goal driven. Like, yeah, I'm super goal driven. And like, at any point, like, look, I can show you like, you know, my agenda and in here there's like, you know, goal setting pages and like how you break those goals down into actionable steps so that every day, you know, you're not wasting your time. Like there's the industrious conscientious thing <laughs> kicking in, but you know, if I can answer your question about the future, I guess for me, the, like the real wake up call, which is what resulted in my book is, um, so I, I'm, I, I'm a mom. I had my son, he's now almost five. And in the first year of his life, I ended up, I made this super ambitious business plan and doubled the, you know, the, the amount of money that my business makes, but I was working so hard. And that really kind of forced me to sit down and think and what am I doing with this? You know, and like, there's nothing like, you know, becoming a parent to like make you reevaluate your priorities. Um, but it was definitely like a moment when I stepped back and was like, what do I need more money for? What is this thing that makes me, you know, use, I call it the bank account Olympics. Like what made me want to start competing in the bank account Olympics? And like, when did money not be a tool to live a fulfilling life? And when did it become a yardstick by which I measure myself against other people? And what's that really about? 
you know? And I think like when those lights started going on for me, then my plan for the future kind of has changed in the sense that, I mean, I, I I've reached the level of financial independence that I want. I I'm at the point where money is not going to make that much difference to the quality of life that I have, because I'm already like financially where I want to be. And so when you get there, then the question becomes, how can I do things that are, you know, helpful to others? How can I have more time with my family? How can I do different things that are going to bring me fulfillment and make me feel like I'm useful? You know, and I think that's where writing the book came from. I think that's where like, I actually co-host a couple of podcasts now. And the, the most exciting one I think is, is, is called mindful wealth, which really gets into these issues, which looks at, okay, it's great to be success driven, but at the same time, how do you fit that into the fact that like life is meant to be experienced? It's not meant to be sacrificed to the gods of bank balances, you know? So tell me a little bit about the book. What, what, what initiated where did the title come from what was the kind of what drove you to write the book and tell me a little bit about it well i think i always had the dream of writing a book um and then it was like kind of going through different iterations and seeing what first of all i wanted to get a publishing deal i didn't want to self-publish so first of all what is a publisher going to take on and then also what message do i kind of what's my two cents right and so i think real people in the real estate industry are, I don't want to say they're a dime a dozen, but there's a lot of successful people in the real estate industry. But this perspective of when is enough enough of how do you deal with fear? Because I think there are like two sort of major groups of issues that people who invest have. The first one, which you beat at the beginning is, is your self-sabotage, right? Like, first of all, you have to get over the fear. You have to get over the unknown. You have to basically just jump in and there's a whole bunch of mental practices that can help you face fear. Okay. So that's the first part then. And this is actually the way the book is structured. Then the middle part is like knowledge. So, okay. How do you screen a tenant? How do you sign a lease? How do you make building calculations? Because once you get over fear, then you need knowledge. And then once you've accumulated enough knowledge and you start to have success, then what do you do with that success? Because if you're trading one rat race for another, you've actually not won the game. Like maybe you now have passive income, but you're just running your rats just in a different wheel now. Mm -hmm. So how do you not fall into that trap? hundred percent. So when you look at, you know, you're doing this body of work and uh, you've come to where you've come to. And what I heard in what you said a little bit earlier was at what point is enough enough? And when do you stop comparing yourself or whatever was driving you at that time to make more money? Do you, how do you define, or do you have a definition for success? Oh man, that is such a good question. <laughs> um, wow. Do I have a, you mean personal success or success in general? I don't care. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we actually, I think we did a whole episode on this on the, on the mindful wealth podcast and it's that there are internal and external conditions. Okay. When we talk about success, like in the outside world, there are bank balances, there are medals, there are titles, there are top 1%, like there are external markers of success. And in a sense, all of us who are sort of goal driven, like very often those shiny objects attract us. And it's not just that they're shiny objects, it's that human beings live in hierarchies. And it's interesting for us to be able to make it to the top of the hierarchy because that gives us all kinds of privileges. Might give you more money, might give you more opportunities, uh, send your kids to better schools, eat in nicer restaurants, like all of those kind of things accrue to the people who are at the top of hierarchies. So like, I think we're naturally wired to try and make it to the top of a certain pile. 
And that is the external marker of success. And then there is the internal marker of success, which is that Terry alone on a desert island, what is my ideal way to spend a day? And it turns out that my ideal way to spend a day is, I know I want to hang out with my son. I want to spend time with my husband. I want to train because I love to move. I want to spend two hours exercising. I want to talk to people. I want to read interesting books. I want to do interesting things. And like, even if there's no medals, I want to do those things. Like that's how I want to spend my time. And so, you know, when you ask me, like, how do you talk about success? Well, I think if you do a good job of melding those two, the internal and the external conditions, well, only then can you really attain success. Because there are a lot of people with full bank accounts who are very unhappy. And I mean, you know, as you know, there are a lot of people who who don't have much, but are quite content with that. I mean, then you could get into, do they, you know, how much are they comparing themselves and, you know, people tend to be unhappier when they have less than their neighbors, not when they have less or they have more. It's more of like a comparison game, but it's really like those two things, like the, the internal and the external conditions. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. And I asked the question, you know, in, in my own world these days, and for a while now, I've actually, I'm contemplating even, I don't use the word success uh, as a, a normal thing when I'm referring to anything I'm doing. I've kind of taken the word success out of my vocabulary, short of having a conversation with somebody else and understanding where they might be, whether it be somebody I'm working with one-on-one -on -one or one-on-many, doesn't matter. But for myself personally, I just found I'm contemplating it yet. It's still percolating in my brain, but you know, success doesn't really mean that much to me anymore. It's like, how do I define it? I can't define it. I know how I feel about my life. I know how I feel about my business, but I, I don't have a benchmark that says, well, oh, you've achieved that goal, you're successful. Because to me, it's always okay, but what's next? So, you know, success is kind of this, for me, is a bit ambiguous right now. I, I'm just, I'm contemplating the word. And the other word is happy. You know, these are things that I'm going, well, gosh, you know, what does happy even mean? You know, I'm lit up about my life. I love the relationships I'm in. You know, for me, if I'm going to define anything, I'm only measuring it against, am I living my values and am I clear on my values? And if I'm there, I just know that I experience a lot of joy, a lot of satisfaction. I get to be a contribution. Uh, I mean, more. what more do you want? So it's an interesting conversation to have. And that's why I say, you know, I because I, I know, like you, I know lots of uh, like you do, I mean, I, I know lots of overachievers. I know lots of people who are driven, you know, money's a scorecard, you know, is it a dollar? Is it a hundred dollars? Is it a million dollars? Or just a scorecard. Um, and it's interesting to observe. So that's why I always ask the question, because I'm curious as to where people can enter the space saying, how, how do I define success? I like the way you broke it down, which was interesting. If, if Terry's on an, an island, you know, alone, what is, what happens, right? What does that mean to you? And, and I think that's a I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contemplate that one. I think that's a good one. Yeah, there's actually like, I'm, I'm going to just kind of go back to, you know, what you said about happiness. And we actually did an episode on the Mindful Wealth podcast about this with, um, not to remember his name, actually, it's Dr. Dan France. He's a, a logotherapist from, I think, in New Jersey. And what logotherapy does is it looks at meaning. And the problem with pursuing happiness is that happiness is fleeting. You lose a parent. You end up, uh, you know, living in, a, in, in during COVID, like pursuing happiness. It's a, it's kind of a moving target. And even if you try to pursue it, you're, you're, you're not guaranteed to get it all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you make a life that is meaningful and you pursue meaning, 
happiness will ensue at times when things are, when you're doing things right. When, when the conditions in the outside world allow it to. That's beautiful. I, I love that. You know, this, you know, there's some fundamentals, you know, uh, when my wife, Stephanie and I started finally working together after, you know, almost 30 years, we launched a program called Shift, which was setting honest intentions for transformational thinking, which was really a self-discovery program. And and the journey that we're on is of self-discovery. We're always looking and seeing and recognizing what it is that, you know, lights us up. What is it that you want out of your life? What is fulfilling? And it's always interesting. It's a cool conversation in all of this when we talk about success and happiness and all the things is that there are some fundamentals that I think most people need, I think, I I don't want to say all, but being a contribution is absolutely essential to our own, you know, mental health, our own emotional health, our own spiritual health, being a contribution. It doesn't have to be on a big scale, but where are you being a contribution? We have to ask ourselves that. At some point, there is the human psyche does need significance, and that significance comes from being a contribution. Now, whether people recognize that or not, that is actually often what they're looking for. And it's just in being a contribution and, and having that significance. If you only ever can work towards that for yourself, living your values, I mean, life starts to get pretty good and you start to get really clear on what it is you want to achieve. So it's always an interesting conversation. And, and, I'm, and I'm now going to listen to that podcast, Mindful Wealth, and, uh, and check it out because uh, I'd be very, very interested in that. So... Terry, what if, you know, when you look at your life and what you've done in business, and I'm sure having your son was a, a kind of a fork in the road, but when you look at how you, when you reflect back on your life, was there a fork in the road that if you would have gone another direction, something else would have happened? Was there a, sig- a person that you met that went, wow, that all of a sudden you're over there. And if that wouldn't have happened, was, have you got that fork in the road in, in your journey so far? Those forks in the road for me happened in terms of books. And, you know, I think often like people ask me, you know, Terry, who have your mentors been? And like, you know, I don't know what it is. I just observe, absorb information very well from books. And like, if, you know, I, I mentioned like those moments, but I basically, I mentioned those books to you, right? Like I mentioned, um, rich dad, poor dad. I read, I mentioned, um, the way of the peaceful warrior. And like more recently, I, I kind of got into Jordan Peterson, which is, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a kind of a two edged uh, admission, yeah. but, um, you know, those, moments really kind of were the forks in the road for me because it was like, as I got introduced to those ideas, it's like a a door in my head opened. And I was like, wow, I would, the way that I was framing things, just, there's a much better way to frame it. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, I guess I've always been like on the lookout for what is the most effective way to frame something in your head, because it's not like the way we interpret things is not fixed. Like you can choose, how do I want to interpret this? And if there's a better interpretation available, then pick the better interpretation. Like, don't be stuck with like, let's say your negative or your limited view of things. Like that's the whole interesting thing about meeting new people, hearing new ideas, being in these ideas discussions is that if you can grab like some great way to frame something, that's going to like level up everything you do, or like maybe take you to the next level of, of, you know, meaning or, or happiness or whatever the next level is for you. I love this conversation, but it also, you know, what I'm hearing in this, you know, as we're having this conversation, Terry, is that, is it fair to say that your kind of life's journey has always been about improving, being the best you can be, uh, really self-discovery and and taking your game to the next level and how you're showing up? Is, is that a fair statement? 
Yeah, growth. growth. I mean, I actually just did this this exercise where like you write whatever you have to write your three main uh, uh, values, and like the number one was growth. You know, I think that I also read another book is by uh, Carol Dweck, and I don't know if I'm gonna. I think it's called Growth Mindset. Um, maybe that's not the right title of the book, but something like that. And, and is talking about how, if you have a fixed mindset, everything is about winning and losing. Whereas if you have a growth mindset, you will acquire the plasticity to react in an optimal mate to the things that you need. And so like, definitely like that's, that's my mantra. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Love that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Jordan Peterson as well, by the way, as controversial as Jordan could be. Um, I, I love his work. I, I love his thought process. I relate to it. So, you know, I'm, he's not too, in my world, he's not uh, often too far uh, offside, if right you will. Wing. You know, so <laughs> he's, he's, he's great. Uh, now, just out of curiosity, because I'm also a, a, an avid reader, but I've become more of an avid listener the past couple of years, and I do a lot of Audible. And although I, I like Kindle, for example, because I can make notes in it now, and there's also some really cool things that you can do with technology, but I also talk to guests who need a book. They got to be able to, you know, open the page and highlight it and make notes. Uh, what kind of reader are you, Terry? Uh, I have, I mean, I have a Kindle now just because like I read, I read too fast. Like I, you know, I did a PhD and I basically spend five years reading. And so like, if I have to wait for the book to arrive and then turn the pages, like it's too slow. Whereas like, if I just can download them, it's, it's a speed thing, really. I, oh, that just, I'm so envious of that, you know? My wife, like, I think she's a speed reader. And I always say, are you skipping pages? Like, I'm halfway through and you're finished the book. You know, I do comprehension exams with her because I don't believe anybody can read that fast. I guess I'm just particularly slow. But anyways, I do, in an interesting was with Audible, I actually speed it up because they talk too slow. So I'm usually running about 1.5 versus, you know, the, the, you know, so I don't even recognize voices if it's the actual author reading the book because I speed speed it up. So it's interesting. So you, you're, you like Kindle. Are you a note taker? Do you, do you, do you, is that how you process? No, I don't know. I don't really take notes. I find like reading is really, it's the best way that I absorb information. I've started with audible just because of, you know, commuting time or like cooking time or sure. like whatever it is. It's a way to like use some of those moments when we couldn't be sitting physically reading a book. No, I'm not much of a note taker. I find like, uh, you know, the, the, the main ideas stick with me and then the other, like, you know, stuff, maybe I won't, won't retain the details, but I, the main ideas tend to stick. That's great. Well, Terry, um, I've taken up a lot of your time. I could have this conversation for a long time and go on the path we are going, but we got to start to wind down a little bit and then, uh, we're going to have to do another podcast, I'm sure. So quick questions. Uh, you know, I do some rapid fires as we wind thing down have some fun. Uh, they're rarely rapid fire, but we'll we'll take a shot at it anyways. And this isn't a real rapid fire question, but I do want to know. I mean, you're you're uh, physical in what you do. You uh, have a a training routine by the sounds of it. What is your self care routine like? Are you uh, working out in the morning, in the evening? Are you still working out given COVID? What's kind of how do you look after yourself, and how important it is is it to you in that regard? Yeah, no, I mean, it's like definitely a struggle for, you know, a mom with a, a young kid. Mm. <laughs> um, but for sure, like there's at least like between an hour and two hours every day set out for some kind of training. And it's not always at the same time uh, because it sort of depends on the routine. Like if I'm 
going to go out for a run. Well, now we have a curfew. So the run has to be done by 8 p.m. Right. <laughs> um, or like, you know, it, it, whatever. It's kind of dictated by uh, outside circumstances. I uh, do have like a bit of a meditation practice as well, uh, which is like morning and evening. It's not super long. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I do on a like on a daily basis. Um, maybe... Are you uh, are you a journal journaler writer? Do you are you are you capturing those thoughts? Are you are you built that way? I think I would if I like had more time. I used to do that when I was less kind of strapped for time, but like now, you know, to get everything done, I like, you know, I wake up before everybody else at six in the morning so that I have yeah. some extra time in the morning to do my stuff. I, I and there's no more, no more extra time in there yeah, yeah. <laughs> right now. You. Okay. So you've talked about uh, a lot about your reading. Do you have a favorite book or yeah, favorite book or one that you would gift on a regular basis? I think the books that I mentioned, like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Peaceful Warrior, uh, 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Fun question. iPhone or Android? iPhone. But look, iPhone 5, like definitely <laughs> not <laughs> the new iPhone. <laughs> uh, within our world, we often joke about, uh, the reason I ask is we just often uh, joke about it as a team and uh, with some of the community. Anyways, what's one job that you do even though you hate it? <laughs> Making the bed. <laughs> <laughs> hate it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Okay, do you have a favorite swear word? Uh, putain de merde. <laughs> okay, I have no idea what you just said, but <laughs> I'm sure it's really offside. Um, favorite inspirational quote? Oh, okay, that's on the spot. Um, it's not going to come out of my, it's not going to come into my head right now. That's fine. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the gates? You did everything. <laughs> what are you, what are you not very good at? Oh, details. I'm really not detail oriented and I have the worst memory. Like it's a joke. And I, and I think this might be like too many hits to the head in kickboxing, but like, I, I am like an Alzheimer's patient before my time. <laughs> I think you're telling this story because you, you're reading books, you're retaining that. So probably, you know, I don't know. I, I... Now, don't, but don't ask me what I had for breakfast this morning. You know, or like, uh, like I have a conversation with my husband, like an hour later, it's not in my head anymore. You know, like, like facts. I have like a, 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 a trap door. Like they, when I have a fact, it will never go away. Not 20 years later, but like, uh, don't ask me what happened yesterday. I do not remember. That's hilarious. Room desk or your car. What do you clean first? Mm, desk. Do you have a favorite tune? Uh, well, I listen to like actually German rap right now. <laughs> okay. Terry, that's. Yeah. <laughs> okay nothing that you're saying today has you know that surprised Anything me to do with that but, no my family's okay. austrian and so we okay. speak german and like i just you know it's like that's gangster a... german rap yeah <laughs> that's so awesome do you have a favorite movie uh, or, is, or movie. here's the most common answer whatever your five-year-old's watching is generally it but what is your favorite movie no, I Fight Club. I really like Fight Club. Oh, you like Fight Club. That would make actually sense, given what you do. And Terry, final question. What are you grateful for? Oh, man, that's like a very, a very long answer. But you know what? I'm very grateful that as a woman, I live now. 
and not at some point at any point in the past, really, mm. because I think that, you know, in terms of our ability to self-actualize our health care, the freedom that we have, the control that we have over our lives, um, I think it's an unparalleled moment for women. And I'm really happy to live now. Beautiful. Well, I am so grateful that I had the opportunity to have you as a guest on the show and to get to know you and uh, a little bit anyways, and to hear your story. Uh, been a wonderful conversation. And uh, Terry, I want to say thank you for being on the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Been very, very good. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.